This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. Some of the research and some of the conversations we had with Indigenous people in New Hampshire and Maine is that the biggest impact are the dams. And, you know, they started putting in dams at the ocean. So they immediately stopped fish migration up into the upper parts of the river. And speaking with some of the indigenous Abenaki, they were like, that's basically equivalent to what happened out west when the buffalo were killed. It was this huge impact on their culture, on their, you know, just on their daily life, their, their, uh, their food source, or one of their food sources. Today's episode is a publication from our Source to Sea project. The Saco River has its headwaters in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, near Mount Washington, travels through Maine, and then into the Atlantic Ocean. And it does all of this in 140 miles. This spring, Joe Klementovich and his paddling partner Mike Moran made a source to sea journey on this river, a river that courses through their communities. This is the river that once hosted Atlantic salmon runs and human civilizations for thousands of years. It is a river that has faced incredible changes from the settlement of European Americans and today has inspired Joe and Mike to learn about their neighborhood river from its headwaters to the ocean. My name is Joe Klementovich. I live in North Conway, New Hampshire, and I'm a freelance uh, photographer. What, what is the nature of the work you do with your photography? It's a pretty wide range of work, but I think the one thing that kind of runs or one thread that runs through it would be kind of people outside or the connection of uh, people to the outdoors. So that ranges from rock climbing and skiing and that kind of adventure side of uh, photography and and video work. Uh, And then also just working with nonprofits that are kind of working in that space, whether it's, um, you know, like a nature conservancy or even like a small um, nonprofits and land trusts. And I'm assuming you have some social media feeds where people can check you out. I guess the only place that uh, would be easy to find me would be, uh, at Klementovich, which is a probably a fail on the, the easy social media handle, but uh, uh, pretty much on Instagram is where um, where I put that stuff. Okay, well, and we'll I'll throw it into the show notes and some of the posts that we do. So great, Joe. You just you just finished a source to see trip, and that's what we're that's what that's the big the big conversation is to hear about your source to see. You know, I want to preface this question with when I thought about source to sees. And, and some of the interviews I've done, you know, I've interviewed people who've gone from Montana to New Orleans or from Wyoming to Mexico. And then our most recent was, was all in the state of California over the course of about 400 plus miles on the Sacramento River. Tell us, tell us about where you're doing this, because this is, this is a little bit, this, I was surprised when I heard where you're doing this and also very excited because it was unique. Tell us about the river, the regionality of it, and kind of just zoom in as you go and tell us about this place. Man, yeah, I, th- I think uh, our trip was kind of small in magnitude compared to the Sacramento and all these other uh, big Western rivers. We're, uh, we're in kind of the upper right corner of the U.S. We started in New Hampshire. I live kind of in the foothills of the White Mountains near Mount Washington, which is a couple, three hours north of Boston. It's kind of funny because if I drive from where we started our trip to where we finished, it would take us about an hour and a half. We're in a kind of small, close part of the U.S. Like our states are small and we jump from border to border. And I think of like trips out west and it takes six or eight hours to get across the state. So that's definitely not us. And and the Saco River is a pretty small watershed. Um the trip we did started in uh, Crawford Notch, which is near again near Mount Washington. But from the true source of the Saco to the ocean is 140 miles. So, yeah, quite a bit smaller than the Sac- Sacramento. Probably at its widest, it's like a four-lane highway. 
but <laughs> so yeah, pretty small. And there's places where it's as wide as a, you know, two lane dirt road. So um, it, it's kind of an intimate experience, I think, um, you know, compared to like a Mississippi or some other uh, big Western river. You know, one thing though, I do want you to talk about is Mount Washington. I've never been there. There was a time when I was doing a bunch of, of backcountry guiding and a lot of my peers, my colleagues came from that part of the country and they, they were very fond of Mount Washington. It was this unique place while it was in a smaller mountain range, a shorter mountain range than where we were working. It had these reputations that they were thrilled to tell me about. Can you, can you express, <laughs> tell us about Mount Washington? Yeah, I think that that definitely, it certainly spreads across the nation. Anyone that's into mountaineering or climbing, ice climbing in particular, kind of knows the sort of an infamous reputation for, it's a small mountain. It's 6,288 feet tall. It has a road that goes to the top of it and a weather observatory. You know, when you put that up against Alaska and Western mountains and mountain ranges in the the world it's 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 pretty small but you know i think some of its reputation comes from just a lot of uh there's been a lot of extreme weather a lot of uh stories around it and it's you know it's it's a day's drive from new york dc boston so it's a huge population backyard or or playground and uh, you know i use the playground as tongue-in-cheek a little bit because uh, you know, part of its reputation is the world's worst weather, and um, we certainly get some gnarly weather up there. And if anyone spent any time in the winter up there, you know, they know that it's uh, it'll have hurricane force winds, it'll have whiteouts, it has you know all sorts of big snowstorms, and um, I think that's part of that reputation that those guys were talking about is like you can really get a full big mountain experience. And it's only a short drive from anyone. So that's part of it. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been explored for so many years. And it's kind of part of that New England history and all the lore of, um, you know, ice climbing is a rich history uh, in Huntington Ravine. And, and, the, and then just the skiing scene from the 1920s and 30s on when it was like wood skis and uh, you know, wool, wool knickers skiing down some 40 degree slopes, 45 degree slopes um, back in the day. So I think it all piles up and has a lot of layers of that kind of reputation. And then is, is this, is this the headwaters where you're, you're walking around and finding the, the, the early movement, the early moving waters of the, of the Saco river. And that's where you're starting. Yeah, so Mount Washington is not like a um, a volcanic peak like some of the, you know, like uh, Mount Rainier or something like that. It's 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 kind of a, a massive, like, uh, it's the tallest peak, but its shoulders include a bunch of other peaks, and that makes up the, a big chunk of the presidential range, and um you know, kind of the centerpiece of the, the White Mountains here in New Hampshire. But there's lots of gullies and valleys and ridges that start the, the Saco River proper. And I did a little research at the beginning of this trip trying to figure out, like, really what would be the most, you know, what's the furthest point of moving water from the mouth of the, uh, where it meets the ocean. And, and I came up with this little glacial cirque called Oaks Gulf and it's uh, it's in the dry river uh, wilderness so it's a really pretty area it doesn't get a lot of traffic and my hope was to actually go up in the late spring and see some of the snowpack and the melt starting and then you know kind of follow that through for a litany of reasons I didn't end up doing that but I did hike up into the dry river and see that part of one of the tributaries so it's, it's actually called the dry river and that runs for 10 miles plus or minus and it eventually runs into the Saco. but yeah for sure our Saco river and all the rivers that feed out of the white mountains 
their cool water and their a lot of their spring runoff comes from the feet of snow that gets um, accumulated up in the, the White Mountains around Mount Washington. Were you seeing snow when you when you were messing around up there in those headwaters? Uh, yeah, the the snow sticks around on Mount Washington. I think the latest like update was last week. There were still little patches of snow up high in the little northern facing protected areas that get a, a lot of snow and not a lot of sunshine. Take us from there then and just give a general description of the geology and the landscape changes that you that you would that you did encounter as you as you coursed this river out to the ocean. The upper parts of the river are granite and schist geology up in the upper parts of the White Mountains and that's you know through where the river flows and until there's enough water it's basically a, a creek as you'd call it out west and it's just full of boulders and cobblestones and just rocks so really no way to navigate it um we we did hike around a little bit of it and we've spent both mike warren the guy i went with uh and myself we spent a bunch of time hiking in, in the area so we kind of knew up front we weren't going to be able to actually get that high up into the mountains so our plan going into it was that we would start in a little town called bartlett and that's kind of at the beginning of uh, crawford notch so most of the elevation from say six thousand feet drops in a little stream creek um, and gets down to probably about seven or eight hundred feet is where we started in elevation um, on a little straight on a little river called the Ellis River. So our original plan was to start in Bartlett. We got there and um, we scoped it out and we looked at it and it was way too low. There's just like we had a drought last year. We didn't have a big snowpack this year. We haven't had much spring rain. So our rivers like not as bad as you guys out west, but our rivers are definitely below normal in volume or in you know flow. So we ended up basically that morning deciding, okay, we're going to actually start a little further down down the road. Um, and our, you know, the Saco River is kind of an urban; it runs through a bunch of towns uh, all the way to the ocean. So we just jumped on the road, drove down the road a few miles, and got on this other tributary and started our trip. And that first part of the trip was dragging our paddle boards and gear over rocks and cobbles for certain sections because there just wasn't enough water to float. Tell us about the, the ocean and what that was like getting to the ocean. What, what I, I just am so curious about the, the, the engagement of rivers and ocean. Can you describe that, that part of your trip, please? I'd say that that was kind of, well, it was like a good and bad experience. Um, the Saco River runs into the ocean uh, in in Maine, and it's a interesting one side, like the, I think the south, south bank of the river is a town called Bitterford, and the north side of the river is called Saco. And it's a kind of it's uh i think well the history of those two towns kind of dates back to the 16 somethings when it was first explored by europeans and obviously well before that there were indigenous people living in that area and making it their home so when we got there our paddling experience was urban it was industrial um there's lots of brick mills um, that date back to the probably 1800s or something. And it just felt like after five or four days of paddling in relatively um, protected, green, wonderful forests and, and, um, and fields and, and hillsides, it was kind of this shocking, we crossed under Route 95, which is that, you know, the main highway that runs north-south on the East Coast. We crossed under that the last morning, and we were just like, 
a little bit deflated like wow this is like the end of the trip it's kind of gross you know there's 18 wheelers calling over our head and then we had a mile a little over a mile portage through Biddeford and Saco because there's four dams it's a, they call it the cataract dam complex but there's four different dams around an island that um that is kind of like the last uh title or that's the last zone before the title zone so you know that was like this kind of rude awakening after four days of, of really kind of beautiful battling and then once we portaged around all of that we got on the river and uh, caught the outgoing tide and a tailwind and we were going like six or seven miles an hour um, which was wonderful to just be on the river and paddling through these estuaries and again it's a beautiful stretch of river and then for about six miles and then you pop out to the east coast like you it's there's big stone jetties there's a town that we finished our trip in called Camp Ellis, which is just a little kind of summertime beach community uh, right at the mouth of the river. And um, and then like pulled up into a boat launch and, and got out there. So certainly, a yeah, just a, a mix of experiences through that last interface. Tell me more about the estuaries. I'm hearing you say that there was the, the very heavy urban situation the, the big uh, Route 95 going under it, the heavy traffic. But then in between there and Camp Ellis out at the true coast, in the estuary, did it return to a more natural setting? Yeah, for sure. So after portaging through downtown, we put back in, and then it then we start paddling, and it's it's a much quieter. And I think that's just basically due to the fact that there's estuaries and salt marshes and a little bit of a tidal marsh zone. So there's not houses kind of packed up right against the river. So it, it kind of meanders through there and it's a, it's a really pretty section of, of river. You know, there's some houses built alongside and a couple more marinas we went through, but for the most part, it's, you know, like 70, 60% of it is, is these beautiful salt grass, salt marsh and uh, seagrass. We saw bald eagles. It's definitely, it returns more towards natural, certainly not urban through there. Going back up into the other parts of the river before you get out to that kind of coastal zone, you said that in that coastal zone, you hit those four, those four dams in that urban complex. Are there other dams on the other stretch, on the upper stretches of the river, small check dams, larger dams for reservoirs? No small dams. All of, we had, a total of six portages. One of those was a waterfall that was natural. And then the rest of them were dams. And the first dam we encountered was this called Swans Falls. It's pretty close to the border of Maine and New Hampshire. That's just this old rundown hydro dam that probably should get removed. When you paddle up to it, it, it looks like this haunted building. It's just kind of surprising that it's still still working. Yeah, so then there's a total of six dams, and and of that six, the Biddeford Cataract Dam Complex we consider as one because we had a big portage around it, but it's actually four dams. So the other dams are bigger hydro dams, and I think one of them creates a um, like a reservoir in the river. Did you say your total trip was 140 miles? Uh, our trip on the paddle boards was 130. I'd say the from the source to sea would be 140, but not navigable, I guess. Is there is there 10 miles in there that you did something besides paddle boards? Yeah, we didn't actually trace that hiking. We did go up in the upper few miles of the uh, the dry river, which starts it. Got it. Okay, so some hiking in the in the driest parts, and then the, the lowest water parts, and then and then you get on your boats. But your boats, tell us about your boats because they're they're. I mean, they float, but I don't call them boats. But you tell us about what you did, how you got right. down that river. We use paddle boards, inflatable paddle boards, and if you haven't spent any time on a paddle board, I highly recommend it. Just a really great way to 
be on the water. It's a lot different than sitting in a kayak. It's a lot different than paddling a canoe. It's yeah, just a really good way to, to see the world. I've had a paddleboard for a handful of years and I just, I fish on it and I do, I'll paddle some sections of the Saka River, which are very close to home. And I don't know, two or three years ago, I thought it'd be, you know, a pretty interesting trip to paddle from my house roughly to the ocean. It's kind of funny, Mike Morin, my partner on the, in this little journey, was kind of on the same path. He was thinking independently for a few handful of years, like, oh, I'd like to paddle to the ocean. And he grew up in Old Town, Maine, which is the home of a big canoe manufacturer. So he loves to paddle. And I applied for this grant through Rivers for Change, and it was pre-COVID, and I completely forgot about it during COVID, and and it just, um, Danielle from Rivers for Change sent me an email saying, yeah, we'd like to support your journey, and uh, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that that would be great. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I reached out to Mike on a completely different topic, and then mention, you know, he's like, oh, what are you up to this summer? And I mentioned, oh, I'm, I'm paddling to the ocean. And he's like, oh, I'm doing, like, I'm thinking about doing that this summer too. And then we're just like, well, obviously we should probably do it together. Um, so we picked a date and just saddled up and went and did it. So, so when you're doing this on a paddleboard, are you taking all your camping gear and all your food, all your gear with you? And then the other question with that also is, are you standing the whole time or do you sit down, squat down, kneel down? We had all our gear to run from Bartlett to the ocean, all our food, all our sleeping stuff, cooking gear to do it unsupported to the ocean. So we had like six or seven days worth of food. We had a water filter and then I had a lot of, well, not a lot, but I had some camera gear and yeah we had everything on our boards i think i weighed roughly maybe 50 or 55 pounds of equipment and then me on top and mike i think was around the same maybe a little bit more we had everything to go from start to finish you know i think neither one of us went into this thinking like this was going to be a a fully self-supported independent kind of journey like you would in the Arctic or somewhere remote. You know, roads cross this river, I don't know how many times, probably a dozen or more. Um, roads follow it here and there. And so we, we you know, put some stuff out on social media saying we're doing it. And we had all sorts of friends like, oh, this is cool. Do you mind if we join you? Or, hey, we'll meet you at your campsite and hang out or we'll paddle for a day or two. So... We were self-supported, but we had a lot of friends show up with pizza and a couple beards, so we were definitely um, helped along the way. And I think you know that was that was part of I think some of the highlights is just having people reach out to us and be like, you know, I've always wanted to do that. I'm psyched you guys are doing it. Our friend Eric was in that camp, and he. He joined us for two days and camped with us one night, and it was great. You know, that was definitely a takeaway for us is, is how much people enjoyed, like, just hearing a little bit about the story and, and maybe being motivated to get out on the water for themselves. And uh, we did not stand up the entire way. Mike had a pretty good setup. He had his dry bag just behind him a little bit, and it was a bigger dry bag so he could actually just when he wanted to change positions he could actually just sit on a dry bag and paddle like almost like being on a canoe i had smaller dry bags kind of in the front and in the back so i didn't have that luxury <laughs> but i certainly did sit for a while and kneel just to change up muscles and just that stance i want to ask you about this magnitude idea and you're saying about 140 miles is your journey. How many days? Was that six or seven days? Uh, we ended up doing it in five. Yeah, so, you know, the course of five days, you're going source to sea from 
from up in the mountains down to the Atlantic Ocean. Do you, when you're out there on this journey, regardless of it being only five days or holy moly, you got to have five days and it was this one, you know, this length of miles, did you feel the magnitude of moving the entire distance of a river of that, that idea of moving from the ocean or I'm sorry, from the mountains out to the ocean? Like what, what was the feelings you were having around the big picture of the, of this, of this source to sea journey that you were on? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think there was some, the neat thing about traveling on a paddleboard, one on, you know, each of us with our own paddleboard is kind of like you could stand next to each other and it was like walking. Our average pace was like three miles an hour. You could stand next to each other. You could follow each other. We're like we could move around the water as much as you would if you were walking down a, a dirt road with somebody. And I think, um, that pace is really nice. Like we just, we talked for hours. Some of that conversation was around just the fact that like we paddled for a full long day. Like we were beat at the end of our first day. We were only a 25, maybe a 30 minute drive from where we started. And I think going into it, we knew that this was kind of going to be this, nice reasonably sized trip on the river so as far as like the magnitude of it i think we we realized that you know our, our river that flows through our our neighborhood is not this massive river and it's a river that anyone could just jump in a canoe and, and enjoy and in fact in north conway there's this huge population of people that come up from boston or you know, parts south, and they'll rent inner tubes and float down the river for six hours, seven hours. So it's a relatively innocuous river, I guess, and it's a very casual river to explore if you're, you know, if you want to get into kayaking or paddleboarding or, or whatever. And I think part of our surprise on the trip was how many miles of it were really, truly wild and and very quiet and forested on both sides and nobody around because our experience with the Saka River in our North Conway area is on the weekends it's just crazy it's overused there's hundreds of people with kayaks and inner tubes floating down the river so I think the magnitude of it for us was like wow this is kind of a small river but once you get going on it in a continuous fashion, it feels like you're out there and you're, you know, it's, it's a lot bigger than like what we kind of expected. Those, those more wild places, the forests, the fields, the, the open areas, the less populated places, are those private land? Is that public land? It's a big mix. I'd say the majority of it is private land. What's different here on the east is that uh, land ownership goes to the high water mark, not to the center of the stream or including the, the bottom of the stream. So the public can actually use those beaches that are along the river below the high water mark, uh, assuming that there's no there's no signage, uh, you know, no trespassing signs or whatnot. But then there's a, an incredible amount of nonprofits that are conserving huge tracts of land along the river. And it's really interesting to see because they have sign, you know, small signs saying like what they do. Uh, you know, if it's the Upper Saco Valley Land Trust uh, has protected a bunch of critical habitat along the river, floodplains and other interesting ecosystems. So for the most part, I'd say it's private. So, you know, I'm hearing, uh, I feel like I could extract from the conversation we've had so far as to why you did this trip. You've talked about just kind of wanting to do this and thinking it would be interesting. It's your neighborhood river. You sound to me like a person who enjoys being outside in the less confined areas. What is the why? Why, why choose this river? Why go top to bottom? Why? Why? Uh, 
yeah, I don't know. The, I mean, it's not as this huge philosophical why. I think for me, it was just kind of like, wow, this is a, you know, I've lived in this area for 20 something years. I've, I've fished on the river in a bunch of different places. I've, I've been one of those people to sit on a tube and float down the river on a gorgeous summer day. But that was all kind of contained in that upper northern or the, the New Hampshire uh, side of the river. And I think when you interact with something so much on a daily basis, it's kind of neat to think of it in different ways. And, and certainly I do like to go on, you know, some kind of a, you know, road trip or an adventure. And uh, yeah, like I said earlier, like being on a paddleboard um, is a great way to explore a place. And we had all sorts of fun. I mean, it, it, you know, we're, we're so lucky, both of us, to have the ability to take five days or six days or whatever and, you know, unplug from work, put your phone away and, and be able to have an adventure like this. You know, we're obviously grateful to, to have that experience and, and be able to have the flexibility to make that happen. So I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, we were both looking for maybe a little bit of adventure close to home that was different. Mike works for the Access Fund, which is a advocacy group for landowners and uh, just rock climbing and, and getting access to, to climbing cliffs. So he has a lot of uh, passion around environmental causes and he rock climbs, I've rock climbed for years. So I think with maybe the timing of COVID and whatnot, this was the perfect way to kind of explore someplace close to home without getting on a plane or, or getting in a car. Would you tell us about the river in, in terms of, of how it appears to you, like the, the condition of it? Is it clean water? Is it dirty? Is it, is it a river that's struggling? Is it, a, is it a healthy river? Does it have kind of a mixed personality of those characteristics? We spent some time doing some homework around the river before we jumped on and and one of the things we learned is that along the river, you cannot develop within so many feet of the river. So that, I think, certainly made our experience much better. It could have been, you know, houses packed right up against the river. So the Saco is one of the cleanest rivers in New England. And for certain, we saw that. It's, uh, you know, we, we took our water from the river almost the entire trip. We either pumped it through a... Um, you know, water filter or boiled it. And the only place where we stopped doing that was when we got to Biddeford in that area. And it just seemed like it was a different river. It just whether that's just the urban feel or I don't know what kind of discharge is going on through that kind of industrial urban zone. But I'm sure there's, you know, more runoff from, you know, roads and parking lots and whatnot. So certainly making the river a little less clean. But overall, I think it's a beautiful river and it's, it's very healthy and it looks clean. I think the big impact is, you know, anyone you talk to about rivers is, is dams are a huge impact on the fish population, the flow of the river, the temperatures. The dams certainly create a, um, a problem for a lot, of, um, a lot of things. You know, so I think for the most part, it's a clean river. It just needs some education around, um, you know, all of the things that could, you know, all of the, the user groups that could do a better job using the river. So there's three kind of big concepts I want to ask about in the next handful of questions. And those are, what was the, the, the Saco River like pre-European contact? And that mean, that that refers to, the fish populations, because I understand there was a, a very robust salmon population in that in, in those New England rivers before Europeans arrived. And then also I'm curious about the native cultures that were that were living there along the Saco moving throughout those regions. So let's start let's start there with the native cultures. Do you do, are you aware personally, is it is it is there common knowledge where you live about the native cultures that were inhabiting that were living in and around the Saco, the Saco river. 
Yeah, that's that's great. Thanks for kind of raising that that question because that was something that both Mike and I were pretty interested in about the river and and its connection. And you know, we kind of went into this thinking that it was really great to have this connection between the mountains and the ocean, but really it's kind of it's really the connections between the people along the river or that that enjoy the river um, and the and the river. So some of the some of the research and some of the conversations we had uh, with indigenous people in New Hampshire and Maine is that the biggest impact are the dams and you know they started putting in dams at the ocean so they immediately stopped fish migration up into the upper parts of the river and speaking with some of the indigenous Abenaki they were like that's basically equivalent to what happened out west when the buffalo were killed it was this huge impact on their culture on their you know just on their daily life their their uh, their food source or one of their food sources and i think the other thing that is really interesting about the saco is that there's a lot of conversation around the name and there's no real consensus of where that name comes from the way i understand it is that there is a group of indigenous people that would live at the mouth of the river and then during one season and then they would travel upriver and then spend the other half of the year in you know the mountains and that was their their transportation that was their their highway and in our conversation with some of the indigenous people one of the things that they mentioned is like that their culture wouldn't have romanticized the river like we do as europeans it would be like us writing about route 95 or you know i-70 out west right it'd be like who would even think about romanticizing this and that struck me uh, yeah that struck me pretty intensely that that was their their way to get from point a to point b and you know move their families and their all of their belongings up and down and through new england and that goes for all of these northeastern rivers. They were the, they were kind of the, the heart, the bloodstream, the you know the epicenter of their their world, whether it was fishing or living by it or getting their water or or um, yeah moving up and down. I feel like I'm hearing you refer to an indigenous culture or maybe a few or or, or many indigenous cultures that are still on the land, on the ground today. Am I hearing that right? There's federally recognized tribes are in Maine, the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot nations. I'm not an expert in this by any means. I don't know if the Penobscot or the Passamaquoddy are part of the same group. In general, the Wabanaki people lived through Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, northern massachusetts southern canada in this area so that was kind of the wabanaki confederacy uh, and there were many smaller tribes that kind of fell under that umbrella and yeah again uh, you know this is just from some research that i've pulled together and in conversations that i've had with people can you can you talk more about the salmon culture, the salmon populations, and the salmon culture that existed before it was decimated, and and maybe maybe even start with explaining what you understand about that that salmon salmon population today, and and comparing it to what it was. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there are stories of salmon migrating up and down the Saco, but that would have been stopped relatively early in the the European history. All of the rivers in Maine have Atlantic salmon populations or had Atlantic salmon populations. And there's a lot of work being done to remove the dams on the Penobscot and the Kennebec rivers to help restore those salmon populations. The Saco is not the same I don't think it's the same level of salmon potential. Like 
back in the day if um, the salmon probably ran up into the Saco, but it was not the numbers or the size uh, of the Penobscot or the Kennebec. 10 day or eight dams, six dams on the Saco River, I think have been there since, you know, the 18 whatevers or 1900s, so. Do you, do you know if there are any healthy salmon runs, any healthy salmon rivers in New England right now? Uh, yeah, they certainly wouldn't be healthy or considered healthy, but there's, there is restoration efforts happening and salmon are returning to some of those rivers in Maine. And that's all based on hinges on the removal of dams. And they've been successful in removing dams from the ocean further and further uh, upriver. So they're seeing alewives and other species um, migrating up into the further reaches of the rivers. And so I, I would say, no, there's not a healthy population of returning Atlantic salmon in any of those rivers. But again, not sure. You know, so sometimes I can go to the supermarket grocery store here and I can see, I will see Atlantic salmon farm raised. Is that farm raising salmon? Is that on those rivers? Is that out in the ocean? Is that something you live near, are aware of? There's none of that in the mouth of the river in the area where the Saco comes out. There is farming going on further northeast in Maine, not to the extent of the farm raising salmon that are going on in the northwest of the country, but it's happening and it's not it's not nearly as controversial. And I think that's just because we don't have those big salmon runs that are, you know, so important naturally in the Pacific Northwest. In, in prepping for this interview, I was doing some research around the salmon, and, and I, I found it interesting to learn that, you know, the salmon on the, on the, on the Pacific coast of, the, of North America, the, the salmon swim up the river and return to the place that they, they hatched out, and then those salmon that carry the eggs die. But Atlantic salmon don't do that. They swim up those rivers, hatch out their eggs, and they can return to the sea and make a few different runs over a few seasons of doing this. It's not... And, you know, so part of me thought that possibly it's because of the length, because you're describing some of these, these rivers in, in New England that they're shorter runs, you know, a, a hundred miles, a few hundred miles. And I think of some of the rivers in the Pacific Northwest where a salmon is going to go up the Columbia, up the Snake, up the right. Salmon Rivers, yeah. all the way up into these high country uh, little hatcheries, natural hatcheries up in Idaho. I don't know. I'm going I'm to assume that's over a thousand miles away. Do, do you know much about that in, in terms of how the salmon there in New England were possibly still are able to carry multiple rounds of eggs over multiple seasons? Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I think you're probably onto something with the size of those runs in the Pacific Northwest. They're obviously much longer. The Penobscot River here in Maine would be one of the bigger ones, the Penobscot and the Kennebec. Yeah, that would be a few hundred miles at the most. There are still Atlantic salmon doing their natural thing up in Canada, in the Gaspé Peninsula, and there's you know world-famous fishing around those rivers, the Miramichi and the Dartmouth and the York, and, and they're much shorter rivers. I was up in the Gaspé a handful of years ago fishing, and it's remarkable to see these massive fish in these small, small rivers and crystal clear water. And in the spring, they come up when the runoff is high and the water's high and they come up the river and they spawn and sometimes we'll spend the summer up there and then we'll return to the ocean in the fall. And again, I'm not positive on this, but I believe there's also, they run in, will come upstream in the fall and spawn as well. So. Yeah, pretty remarkable fish for sure. And and there's a, I think what's unique here too is that it's just the Atlantic salmon. It's not there's not multiple salmon species like there is in the the Northwest and Alaska. You know, I have I have a little different question than than talking about fish. I'm curious about how the humans see rivers in New England. 
And and I, I'd like to just kind of, I guess, stage that question a little bit. Part of the, the origination of this podcast certainly was to tell stories and learn things, but it was also to to bring rivers to light because I think of many people just drive over rivers. You described your, your, your Saco river journey, that there was something like 10 or 12 road crossings across that river. I think that's the experience for a lot of people is that they, they only drive over rivers. And so they have this blip of a river in, encounter. I'm curious in a place like new England that is, has more natural rainfall, more, more moisture than, than the arid West. Um, how do people see rivers in, in the part of the country where you live? There's one quote that's stuck in my head doing some of the research on the Saco is, and I don't know who it's attributed to, but in New England, the towns that are built around rivers were built with their backs to the river. And that's stuck with me. And experiencing, you know, the Saco is it really reinforced that when we went through these towns and these urban centers, the buildings were, you know, small windows and whatever the discharge from the factory or mill just dumped into the river. And, you know, back in the 1700s, 1800s, they just put everything in the river they didn't want, right? It just, it went away. They didn't think about the impacts. Maybe they did, maybe they just didn't care. I don't know. But certainly it was not a centerpiece of their community and then go back before Europeans. And it was the centerpiece of their community. It was a, it was a huge important thing that, you know, ran through their front yards, right? The indigenous people used it for their food source, their water. They didn't have, you know, any kind of water filters, right? It was a huge resource, a huge boon for them. You know, the, optimist in me sees these rivers and these river walks that are being built now and you know Biddeford's a good example is and Saco is they're building river walks and paths and changing mill space into restaurants and putting patios and and whatnot facing the river once we do that more just like if you know if you paddle a river you're certainly going to be more aware of what the river's like and you're going to be more apt to uh, raise your voice when something bad's happening to it. What's next for you and, and the Saco River? I mean, you, you just had this trip, this journey, this 140 miles, this five days, but it seems like it's more than that. Uh, you're talking about writing a book. What's next for, for you and this river and this experience? Well, it's funny. I Like I always judge any kind of trip or adventure with like when you wrap it up how are you feeling and when mike and i finished in fact even like we were paddling the last five or six miles it was like all right like what's the next river we can go do this on so yeah we're looking at i think maybe doing the saint john's river which uh, runs along the border of maine and canada and then we actually talked about just doing it again at a different time of year or you know with a different group of people or, or whatever. But I think in the more immediate future, I'm not, I, I put out a bunch of kind of vague requests to get, um, creatives like writers, photographers, poets, anyone that has this connection to the water, ideally to the soccer river, but to the water in general, so if anyone's listening to this, like hit me up because I, in this project of building this like one-off magazine around the pro around the journey is I'd love to get, you know, people's perspective on what they, it, it doesn't need to be a specific thing, but yeah, their feelings around rivers and, you know, I've already got a handful of people. I've got this wonderful artist um, who is, hand illustrating a map of uh the Saco and then adding um place na- indigenous place names and just different parts of our adventure um and also just some writers and i think it just would be really fun to be able to put something together in a print form so people could enjoy it but yeah there's all sorts of fun stuff to that spin out from a project like this. And it's fun to see the people that get motivated and kind of 
reach out and um, get excited about this stuff. That, that's it for my questions. Do you have anything else you would like to talk about in relation to this, this trip? Well, there's one sort of story, which I, you know, you touched upon like camping on the side of a river and that's kind of the best place to do it. And, and all of that goes around it. Our fourth day on the river, we had like four portages to do. Eric was leaving us and we had to portage around this, um, this kind of class four rapid. It's a long stretch of rapids called the Limington rips. A friend of mine, before we started our trip, sent me this archeological white paper on a dig that was done along the banks of that where the river flooded and it uncovered some Native American artifacts, the remains of a sweat lodge and some hand tools and some places where I believe it was food processing was done. And that night we camped very near that area and it was very nice to um, be able to sit on a river and watch the sunset and realize that, you know, 8,000 or 10,000 years ago, people were doing the same thing, enjoying a sunset, just sitting around and, and enjoying the, the flow of the river and the sunset. I don't know what that is or what that experience was, but it was pretty, pretty cool to kind of jump back in time for a night and uh, be in the same place where, where people have been, you know, for, for, thousands of years an Atlantic salmon size thank you goes out to Joe Klimentovich for sharing this story with such depth you can find links to Joe's Instagram and his website in the show notes his photo essays are loaded with brilliant photographs of rivers fish, mountains, people and even coffee roasting you can find the River Radius on Instagram and Facebook where additional river content is published weekly you can also find more information on our website those links are also in the show notes you can contact us anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. My name is Sam Carter. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. Can you hear me okay? I'm, I'm in the car. Biddeford, yes. And if you're from Maine, it's Biddeford. Big, beautiful, silver with black stripe, striped bass in the wave. Yeah, we were in the, yeah, the Atlantic Ocean.